Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, we'll discuss the legacy of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia and explore whether he was a paragon of American jurisprudence, a right-wing whack job, or both things at the same time. Tom, what do you think? Right-wing... bong, the witch is dead. <laughs> Laurie, where, where do you come down? I'm guessing you were pro Scalia. You're, you're very sad that he's gone. Well, I have a big poster of him up in my bedroom, and um, I'm a huge fan. Should we say that you have a Hitler mustache drawn on that poster? If you if you must. Daniel Alavas and Ruben Rodriguez have co-edited an anthology of Los Angeles poets called The Coiled Serpent, poets arising from the cultural quakes and shifts of Los Angeles, and they will be in the studio to discuss it with us. Joining me are my usual co-hosts, the noted political philosopher and deep thinker, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. I'm glad we're having some poetry on. And Oscar Hammerstein expert, Laurie Weiner. Hello, Laurie. Hi, Seth. When a famous person who we want to talk about dies, what is it that we do here on the LARB Radio Hour? We, we call, call we call someone who knows more than we do about it. We call Don Franzen usually. In this case, we should just call him when anyone dies. I think Don Franzen is a lawyer we know, and why do we know him, Lori? Well, he is our lawyer. I mean, he is our literary editor of lawyerly writing, as I, um, as, yeah. which I believe the, mas- the masthead I says. To, I, think. I needed yeah. to edit me. Should, should we go get our literary editor of lawyerly writing on the phone? <laughs> Jerry, can you get Don Franzen on the phone for us, please? Hi, Don. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Um, very well. Very well. Don, Scalia's death seems to have kicked off a major national moment. And in terms of giving our listeners an overview, perhaps you could tell us why this has happened. Antonin Scalia represented the foremost proponent of the theories of originalism and textualism. Originalist means you look to the meaning that the document had at the time it was drafted, what the men in Philadelphia thought they were doing when they drafted it. And textualism, which means that you look just to the language itself. You look to, as we say in the law, the four corners of the document to determine the meaning of the document. You don't look to external sources. So Scalia always wanted to go back to 1787. What What were they trying to do back in 1787? and always looking at just the words themselves. He hated, for example, legislative history. In other words, evidence about what, would, what the debates were about the passage of a law, or what were the debates in the Constitutional Convention. It's back to just the text and uh, its plain meaning. Without him, the court won't have the same powerful intellectual spokesman for these two theories, originalism and textualism. And it leaves really just Thomas and Alito, who, relatively speaking, are intellectual lightweights. In fact, one of the nicknames for Alito is Scalito, uh, you know, diminutive, <laughs> this Italian diminutive form yeah, of, uh, of Scalia. <laughs> and and uh, Thomas, of course, famously hasn't spoken a word the whole time he's been on the bench, although he does write opinions and oftentimes very strongly worded dissents. But without him as the spokesman, uh, it's questionable how much life those two theories will continue to have. And since he was such a strong spokesman, 
he has been one of the consistent people voting in the conservative majority. And it's no secret the court's gone back and forth, 5-4, five, 5-4. Four, five, four. Right. So many decisions, big important decisions. Without Scalia there, uh, one of the five is missing, <laughs> whichever way it goes. And so it really puts the court's future, literally the scales are evenly balanced now. And the next appointment will be extremely important. Let me push on one thing, Don. It seems to me that originalism, as I understand it, and textualism are actually, they do not go together. That is, I think there's a kind of intellectual coherence if you try to do both of them. One of them requires being outside the text. I mean, if you're talking about original intent... Intent is not textual. Intent is a is a is an interpretive act. So the two theories just don't go together. And and that's what I, I've always thought about Scalia. Everybody talks about what an intellectual giant he is, but it's he seems intellectually incoherent to me. I think that's a good point because it's hard to say we're going to go with the original intent without looking at circumstances around the adoption of the of the document in question. Yeah, exactly. And the debates that he says. What the debate should, said, yeah. mm-hmm. the note that Madison took during the, the convention, for example, the Federalist Papers. Right. All of these things uh, scholars and courts have relied on to try to figure out what the Constitution uh, meant at the time. Uh, even saying that, though, if, he, if he's going to stick with his textualist theory, he was still governed by originalism. Uh, and time and time again, Scalia would vote against an interpretation of the Constitution that he thought went against what was intended in 1787. Let me ask you something uh, from a civilian perspective, my impression of originalism. It seems to me that it's inherently a ve- an arrogant um, and self-righteous theory because when I was a drama critic in the 1990s, I once reviewed Ray Fiennes' Hamlet on Broadway, and I didn't think it was very good. And I wrote a bad review. And I got a letter from his lawyer telling me that Ray Fiennes was performing Shakespeare exactly as Shakespeare intended. And, and I think that that's the um, originalist view in, in criticism. But it was he was like, a Scalian. But if, right. But of course, the idea is like, why in the world do you know what Shakespeare wanted and not me? I mean, I think there's, um, you know, that, that within the theory built into it is the idea that I, in fact, know what the intent is and your interpretation is wrong. There's another aspect of it, which is that this originalist like Scalia still uh, could find some very surprising things, supposedly, in the text of the Constitution. And and one of the uh, main exhibits to that point would be the decision in District of Columbia versus Heller, where he and the majority of Supreme Court justices found, for the first time in 200 years, (laughs) that there was a constitutional right to own a firearm. That had never been recognized by the court before. So how did he get that? He did it in part through uh, history, looking at history and their interpretation of what the Second Amendment was supposed to, uh, what what rights it was supposed to guarantee. Now the court's acting as a historian. How effective is that? In fact, when I interviewed Scalia, I asked him about the court acting as a historian. And his answer was, well, we're better at being historians than we are at being philosophers. So (laughs) if you you read that interview, that was his response on, on that issue. Don, because Scalia's 
conclusions, his legal conclusions, were so often congruent with the political outcomes he he liked. Do you think that at his uh, at his center was a, an intellectual dishonesty? Well, I'd never want to openly say that, but what I would say is it's that okay. Seth just said he, it, so. like many Supreme Court justices, maybe almost all of them, uh, if they espouse a theory, the theory is often a servant to some other agenda, and uh, oftentimes a rationalization for that particular agenda. And I'd say justices of the Supreme Court, right and left, are both guilty of that almost original sin. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, French poet Paul Valéry said, um, theory is autobiography, <laughs> which seems to be right to me. And and Don, one of the things that I've been noticing lately is with all this talk about how Obama should not, you know, on the Republican side, Obama should not appoint a, a justice. Um, it, there's a very easy intent argument to be made about this. That is Washington, Jefferson, Adams, uh, Madison and Monroe all um, either nominated or had confirmed justices in the last year of their terms. Um, I think right, that, and uh, Reagan nominated uh, Kennedy in the last year of his term. Right. So Not I quite. think that the 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 intentional argument, the historical argument, uh, it all kind of adds up to. I, I, is it normal for people to call for not, vacancies not to be filled? That is very unusual, and it just bespeaks the the character of politics in this country these days. Uh, to me, it's very simple. Uh, Obama's a sitting president. He's a sitting president for another year, approximately, a little less than a year. There is a vacancy on the Supreme Court. There are major decisions that need to be made this term. The court is short one player, let's say. Uh, there's going to be a lot. Of, it'll be 4-4 on a lot of issues. In other words, the court will be in paralysis on some of the major cases. I think it's irresponsible not to replace Scalia promptly so that the court can finish its calendar for this term. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Don, thanks for coming on the uh, LARB Radio Hour. All right. My pleasure. That was Los Angeles lawyer and friend of LARB, Don Franzen. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. You know, I keep thinking, of course, that when people start talking about textualism, my literary theory antennae go up. I, I think that this is an old debate in literary circles. Now, Tom, you, you have said to me that you believe you can make a case for the value of literary theory while standing on Scalia's coffin. So <laughs> I would like to invite you to do that right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, as Don was just saying, Scalia was, was a, a fan of intentionalism. Well, he didn't call it intentionalism. Originalism. Originalism. And Originalism. And textualism. And textualism, right? The two things are completely different, as I suggested. Textualism says you, you pay attention to the text itself. This is what Wimsatt and Beardsley and the, and the kind of mid-century uh, new critics all believed in and all tried to, they tried to outlaw looking outside the text, looking at context, looking at history, looking at even who influenced the writer. This is around the time the author died, correct? Well, that comes a little bit later, but it's, but it, they're, they're related phenomena. The new critic said, um, to think that you can, as Laurie was saying earlier, that the arrogance of thinking you could understand an author's intention, you can't, all you have is the text. 
So you can make up an intention, but you're making it up. And the author may even say that he intended X, but authors are notorious liars, as we know, because you're an author. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm we a need bu- to go no further. <laughs> in my, in my defense, I would like to say I'm a bullshitter. <laughs> okay. Harry Frankfurt is back with us again. I do think that there's something, um, as I intellectually dishonest uh, in, in Laurie's terms, about pretending to hold both of those ideas at the same time. You simply can't. And I think that most literary theory in the, over the last half century has been interested in trying to figure out how we think about the way people process text. What is it? What happens when we read? How much of that is what's on the page? How much of it is what a reader brings to it? I mean, people made fun of deconstruction forever and made fun of all of the kinds of um, difficulties in, right. in reading right. the theorists themselves. Right. But at the base of all of that theoretical activity in the late 20th century was the idea that texts are much more complicated than we think they are. And, and for Derrida and a whole school of thought, the text kind of eats itself. It, it encodes its own negation. It kind of makes everything that it says, it also manages to, to undercut. And therefore, the, the idea that there's a, a biblical hermeneutics that you can apply to this text, the Constitution, that is a, a decoding of a divine intention or a devo- decoding of the, the founder's intention is just, um, it makes no sense if you spend any time thinking about text in this more complex way. So, Laurie, when you think about Scalia, <laughs> and, and I say campaign finance, the environment, abortion, gay rights, affirmative action, which was he most wrong on? Well, I think he was equally wrong. I'm going to quote from the Onion headline, which said, um, Scalia dies after a 30-year war with social progress. I think we can end on that note. Daniel Olivas and Ruben Rodriguez have co-edited a new anthology of Los Angeles poetry called The Coiled Serpent. They are here to talk about it today. Welcome, guys, to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank Thank you. you. I think the title is really interesting. I wanted to ask you about that because, can you say what the title is again? The Coiled Serpent. So, you know, this this image of something about to kind of come out from the, the gap and bite you, you know, I mean, it's kind of an aggressive image, I think. And I just wondered, which I, I like, but I just wondered, is that an idea that you guys have about poetry or art in general? Or is it something that's unique to this collection of poets? What, you know, it's a very... It's a very pungent image. I think Rubin and I come from a very political viewpoint when it comes to literature. Um, I write fiction and poetry, and I do a lot of book coverage. The Coiled Serpent uh, is an image that appears in many different cultures, and it is imbued with both the sense of rest, but also a sense of danger and perhaps a sense of self-protection and a sense of, of making tracks where maybe it's not really wanted. And I feel like at times um, our, our writing, um, uh, writing by people of color from groups that are not commonly published, at least not by the larger presses, I think we have that sense sometimes that we are the coiled serpent. And as I reread the anthology, at times I cried. There are parts of this anthology that I find just so incredibly moving coming from not only a place of beauty, but a place of great turmoil. Um, I was born in L.A. in 1959, and I've seen 
um, not only the uh, Watts Rebellion, but um, the, the Chicano Moratorium of 1970, um, and then moving up to 1992 and what happened there. My old community burned. Um, my parents raised us in a very, very uh, literary but very uh, political household. And um, I think this this anthology in some ways kind of touches upon that, at least for me personally. One of the things I noticed is that you've got a lot, you've got a hundred and how many poets? 160. 160 poets in here. Um, some of them are very well known. Amy, Amy Uyematsu, uh, who we've had on the show here, and uh, Ruben Martinez, and a lot of uh, mid-career people like Doug Kearney, who um, you know is very well known in poetry circles, and then a lot of people who are not. A lot of people who are new on the scene or are, are young poets, uh, or poets just starting out, uh, don't have a book yet, that kind of thing. Right, um, and uh, many poets who um, never studied writing, um, who I believe for some this is the very first time they've been published. Um, there was one poem that was in a group of poems that I was assigned to review, um, and I wanted to to read it. And it's from a man who um, uh, is incarcerated. His name is Rafael Alvarado, and it's called Untitled Prison Poem Number Thirty. Last night, as some inmates pounded their cells at twelve, I thought to myself, at least there are a few less guns being shot in the air this year. And that poet's name is? Rafael Alvarado. Mm -hmm. And like that poem, I, th I found a lot of the poems seem to me to be, and of course it's hard to tell because you're reading one poem from a poet and you don't know whether this lyric voice is actually autobiographical or not, but they seemed autobiographical. They seemed very, um, I want to say prosaic. That is, they're like prose in that they're descriptive and they're straightforward. They're not asking, they're not surrealistic. They're not, I mean, some are, but, but the majority of them are not. And I'm wondering, is that, a, a kind of the natural occurring voice of Los Angeles poetry at work, or is that something that you selected for? Do you yeah, think? we didn't we didn't have any set rules in regards to form, but mm. we did want the pieces to not just be the kind of work that you'd find in an academic setting. We did not want it to be just the kind of work that's so dense that you know you you need to have a certain degree of experience with you know dense poetry in order to read it. We want a work that had a, a solid voice that had something special to say, even if the wording isn't always, um, what's the word, Re refined in, to a certain degree. In some ways, it can be more powerful because of that lack of refinement, the fact that it's just sort of speaking honestly and candidly in regards to these issues. And I think um, that in itself is also a degree of the the variety that can be found in Los Angeles poetry. The fact is not everyone is a poet through academic settings. Some people are just called to be poets. That element in the title of Coiled Serpent, some of that is just that, that calling to write, that calling to express oneself is something that builds up whether you necessarily want it to or not, or whether the, your, your environment is growing that or not. You just want to write, and that's what a lot of these pieces capture. Um, a few years back, I edited an anthology called uh, Latinos in Lotus Land, and um, it was uh, all LA fiction going back to 1940, um, written by Latino and Latina writers. And the title was ironic because um, some people, F. Scott Fitzgerald called Los Angeles Lotus Land, a place where people forgot who they were. And my argument was no. There are mm -hmm. a lot of voices here, a lot of people who every day go to work, every day. Um, they raise kids and, and they deal um, with buses and, and traffic and just, you know, they are living 
um, lives, they're not forgetting who they are. The image of L.A. has has received that from 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 the outsider people who come, um, people who weren't born here. Well, this anthology is the antidote to F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> I think you could safely say. Would you guys uh, read a couple of the poems for us? So, not every poem is um, filled with quakes and shivers and uh, cultural turmoil. Uh, Dana Joya has a wonderful poem here, which um, it's called Meet Me at the Lighthouse. Meet me at the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach, that shabby squat nightclub on its foggy pier. Let's aim for the summer of 71, when all of our friends were young and immortal. I'll pick up the cover charge, find us a table, and order a round of their watery drinks. Let's savor the smoke of the sinister century, perfume of tobacco in the tangy salt air. The crowd will be quiet, only ghosts at the bar, so you, old friend, won't feel out of place. You need a night out from that dim subdivision. Tell Mr. Bones you'll be back before dawn. The club has booked the best talent in Tartarus, Jerry, Cannonball, Hampton, and Stan with Chet and Art, those gorgeous greenhorns, the swinging masters of our West Coast soul. Let the all-stars shine from the jerry-built stage. Let their high notes shimmer above the cold waves. Time and the tide are counting the beats. Death, the collector, is keeping the tab. There's a, there's a poem uh, towards, um, uh, these are arranged alphabetically, so towards the end just means that her name starts with a Y. Uh, it's a Tina Yang poem um, that really struck me uh, called Why My Mother, the Bald-Headed Nun, Rejected Me. Oh. <laughs> Which is just, and it's, a, it's a, uh, a spectacular poem. When my mother was small, that bamboo stick the math teacher bore down on her lat top head with a sharp crack like gum chew knocked the numbers from her head as well as her hairpiece was what my grandmother her mother told me growing up it was his fault grandmother said as if all the yam leaves my mother forced her to devour wouldn't have bleached her olive-toned skin and her illegitimacy any other way but at least they grew her hair back my mother the bell of the ball before she gave up her rough countryside tongue for the smooth egg salad of Americanese, she would eat cherry pie. She called out at raucous bingo games, laughed loudest with prim Republicans, grew her thick moonlit tresses down to her waist, then rejected a Caltech graduate with body odor like mildew. He went on to be the Bill Gates of China and married a woman who stuffed her nose with tissues and called him pretty. My father had his pick of ladies in tight dresses and brought my mother a box of chocolates before knocking her up all 145 pounds, four foot nine of her. She saw the light of Buddha one day shining like crude yellow gold from a dead fish's eye, only to realize that there was life developing in her. Working graveyard shift as a computer technician in the late 70s put the drag queen makeup on her face while her belly swelled and her husband cheated on her with all of Chinatown. Miss Taiwan, American 12th runner-up, lived 21 paces from where dogs howled from their cages and ate tomatoes carved in the shape of rabbit, rabbits. 
By then she was down to 85 pounds and fell asleep on her mother's waterbed chanting sutras, waking up only to tease her hair into coarse, tight poodle curls. Not yet into the Holy Land, my mother fulfilled her Confucian duty when I came out covered in amniotic fluid, grimacing like a gargoyle. Yeah, it's just a spectacular poem, don't you think? Yeah. So Tina Yang, she grew up in Northern California um, on monastery grounds, and uh, her mother um, became a Buddhist nun in 1987. Um, but I think she's an example of this wonderfully eclectic kind of kind of background. She, as with many of the other poets, are giving legitimacy to experiences and to culture, the kind of, of legitimacy that um, we're not seeing given, say, for example, to Barack Obama and mm-hmm. to, to people who um, might not be considered American. And unfortunately... Um, um, this book is coming out at a time um, when we, when at least I thought we might not be entering into um, w- um, a pretty ugly um, landscape. And maybe, maybe this book is could be an antidote to some of that. I hope. Maybe. Let's hope. Uh, well, well, since you brought it up, um, we recently um, suffered through the South Carolina Republican debate. What goes through your mind when you watch Trump? Rubio and Cruz discuss immigration policy. What kind of thoughts come into your head? Well, what's pretty shocking, I think, in some ways, is we have a couple of Latinos who have won delegates, and th- that was not in, in the headlines. I don't think that's ever happened before. And I, I think the reason why that is is because they simply do not represent the vast majority of the Latinos in the United States in terms of how we view the immigration question. Uh, My family um, by itself would be completely rejected, I think, by this group of of Republican candidates. Uh, My wife is Jewish. Our son's Jewish, Chicano, and gay. And, you know, we we just don't fit. We just don't fit with what they would say would be Americans. And that that is so incredibly heartbreaking. Yeah, and they are, too— Latinos that are in in the running for president for the presidency, and nobody's talking about it except on Facebook today. Somebody said, "I'm," or I guess it was from from the the debate. Said, "I can't believe I'm listening to two guys speaking in Spanish in a presidential debate, debate arguing about who's going to deport more Mexicans." Right. I have one more question for anyone who has any idea. When Donald Trump says, um, "You know, we're going to I'm going to build a wall, and I'm going to and." Mexico is going to pay for it. I guarantee you. What is he talking about in his own mind? Like, what is that? Tariffs. I think. <laughs> I think he thinks he can impose oh. tariffs unilaterally you know, without the Senate. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't oh. know. I think you've stumped us there, Laura. Um, <laughs> all right. The book we're discussing is *The Coiled Serpent: Poets Arising from the Cultural Quakes and Shifts of Los Angeles*. Two of the co-editors were kind enough to join us. Thank you, Danielle Olivas and Ruben Rodriguez. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Oraliano, czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld our spiritual advisor, Natalie Chudnovsky. 
We couldn't do this show without the Goldhirsch Foundation, and this is a good time to thank them. Find us on the web at www.elliereviewbooks.org. Download us on iTunes. Better yet, give us a rating. Five stars is good. I think perhaps this week we might have earned that fifth star. Lori, what do you think? I don't know. I looked... At, I went on iTunes and looked at it, and I, I was very dissatisfied with the amount of stars that we have. I and feel like we're, this is begging. I, th- I think we should stop. Don't Please don't rate us. Yeah, no yeah, we ratings. We don't need your ratings. We don't need your ratings. And frankly, I, I don't care if we you don't tune care. in. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, yeah, Fuck we, you. Maybe we'll be here next week. <laughs> maybe we won't. 